Was the opening music to the 49th parallel released in 1941 and bob you were saying about two months before december 7th you know, yeah almost to the day i think it was released in the united kingdom on uh, october 8th of 1941 and then it was released in the united states after pearl harbor so um they intended it originally to try to get the uh, United States more interested in joining the war effort before December 7th, 1941. And it's written, it's directed by Michael Powell and written by uh, Emmerich Pressburger with some help by Rodney Acklin. And uh, the music score was by Ralph Vaughn Williams and uh, I thought the music fit the film really well. Uh, it stars Leslie Howard, Raymond Massey, Lawrence Olivier, Anton Walbrook, Eric Portman, Glynis Johns, Niall McGuinness, and a lot of other folks. Finley Curry, Raymond Lovell. There's a big, big cast. And I, I really also like that they were indigenous people in the film as well. Um, yeah, from almost the beginning, yeah. I see a long straight line athwart a continent. No chain of forts or deep flowing river or mountain range, but a line drawn by men upon a map nearly a century ago, accepted with a handshake and kept ever since. A boundary which divides two nations, yet marks their friendly meeting ground. The 49th parallel the only undefended frontier in the world. Shall we do our intro? Yeah, and you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net and on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash classicmoviereviews. And I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm coming to you from cloudy, cool North Bend today. And this is Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, where it's going to be nice and hot, welcoming everybody back to Classic Movie Reviews and our uh, 1941 film, The 49th Parallel, which uh, had the strong uh, uh, mission of trying to uh, promote more awareness in the United States of the dangers of the war that the United Kingdom was engaged in with Germany and Italy. And uh, it's interesting, the British uh, Ministry of Information really approached Michael Powell to make a propaganda film that would do that thing to promote awareness. And he, uh, they wanted him to do a film on minesweeping, minesweepers and that sort of thing, because that was such a big problem at that time. And he decided to do one 
totally different, which is what we have to review today, the 49th parallel. And you mentioned earlier that the music really fit the film. You know, when it opens up and they're flying over uh, Canada in black and white and the mu the music is is playing, that was all shot by one of the crew members. They, they uh, were in Canada to do location uh, setups and that kind of thing, and they took the opportunity to film a lot of that uh, opening and other scenes of the mountains in Canada. Wouldn't that be beautiful in color? Oh my gosh, yeah, that that area is so spectacular, and I I like that they had like some thanks that they gave to folks that helped with the filming at the beginning as well. Um, I should mention that this is our second film in our uh, British. UK Film Festival that uh, Arthur is joining us on, and Arthur Schoolco is our Tier 4 patron, and he has uh, recorded a little introduction to this film with some of his thoughts, so here's a couple minutes with Arthur, and then we'll come right back. Well, I'm very excited that the 49th Parallel from Michael Pollan and Emmerich Pressburger is on this British Films List podcast. This is... Um, it's a very special film. It's considered to be a uh, propaganda, World War II propaganda film, which it very much is. But in addition to that, it's an epic. It's a bit of an epic because it takes you across uh, Canada, which is um, just an amazing place. And originally the idea was to have this filmed in the United States, but that didn't work out. Uh, we, we also have the great music of Ralph Vaughan Williams. And in the beginning, something that we see is this uh, credits as we're soaring through the mountains of Canada in the West. And I believe it's one of the first, possibly the first time we see this score of great music at the same time soaring through uh, in the viewpoint like an airplane. It also covers special ground as well as a film because we also have many people in it that are not necessarily uh, regular actors and uh, people indigenous to Canada that wouldn't normally get an opportunity to be in a movie. And uh, I believe that Michael Powell wanted to do that. Also, fa some fantastic standout acting performances. Sir Lawrence Olivier gives one as a trapper. And if you didn't look for him, you might miss him because he looks a little bit different than normal, not to mention his accent. We have uh, other fantastic actors, Eric Portman, Niall McGuinness, uh, Finley Curry, Anton Walbrook is also super, and Glennis Johns, uh, Superb uh, actress was, I think, about maybe 17 at the time, and she had a great career afterwards. One other intriguing thing about the movie, too, is that it uh, it just sort of isn't well-known. And um, as a matter of fact, it's sort of a special for Raymond Massey, who's in this film as well, fantastic actor. It's the only time he is a Canadian in a movie. He's Canadian in real life, and it's the only film where he is playing a Canadian. And he's also fantastic in this film. Leslie Howard, another great actor, who I think these are all great performances to look for as you're watching this film. I really envy anybody who hasn't had a chance to see this film and appreciates World War II films or propaganda films, which is what this is at its heart. But it uh, does have many special facets to it. So I, I really hope you enjoy this film very, very much. Thanks, Arthur, for that uh, introduction and overview of the film. Really appreciate you joining us on this episode as well as uh, the last one. I echo your uh, thanks to uh, Arthur. 
the films that he selected have been really excellent, all, all four of them, and we'll be reviewing a couple more here in the next few weeks. In this film, the leading people, the, you know, like the A-list stars that uh, are in it, Laurence Olivier, Raymond Massey, and Leslie Howard, uh, really agreed to, to do this film at uh, about half of their normal fees because they believe so much in the purpose and, and, and goal of the film. And then the other thing I'd like to add is that Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger were such an extremely talented couple of people. They, they've done so many films over the years. Um, I, and I hope I get these correct. I think they did uh, The Red Shoes and The Black Narcissus, which we've reviewed. They just seemed to hit home runs every time they did a film together. And they're doing one that we're coming up on next, I think, which is A Matter of Life and Death. Oh, yeah, the Technicolor in that film is stunning, the way it's presented. Just stunning. So the 49th parallel. I love the, the fact that uh, Emmerich Pressburger remarked that, and this is a quote, uh, Goebbels considered himself an expert on propaganda, but I thought I'd show him a thing or two. And uh, he did that with this film. Oh, yeah. This Because they were at war with Germany, he had nothing kind to say about about them. Arthur had mentioned in his intro that it's an epic, and you know it's not just a propaganda film, but it's kind of an epic journey across Canada. And it starts off in northern Canada <clears throat> on the east coast in Hudson Bay. And at that time, that was really undeveloped country, and, you know, they had the Hudson Bay Trading Post there. It really looked like could have been 1850 yeah. or something. It was like very primitive uh, conditions in terms of the living. But they all, you know, they seemed really happy and contented. And they were getting along with the, the indigenous people there living side by side with them. And then these Germans show up. And I think each each location has one speech that kind of stands out. And there's one that Laurence Olivier has when they're when he's talking to uh eric portman portman's character lieutenant ernst hearth but you come to the wrong man i won't guide you to the railroad me you never make it anyhow why not this is one big country with very few people everyone know everybody <laughs> you can't make a uh, Goose step to it without the police find out. But no one has seen us. Post you. If one husky dog have the smell of you, his boss know from the way he howl that there is stranger in district. One Eskimo might find your track. Maybe have. Most likely that Eskimo is on his way to Mount Police right now. Perhaps, perhaps. She must help us. After all, it's your own interest. Now that your country has surrendered. My country? Surrender? At 12.30 on the 17th of June, 1940, France laid down her arms. France? And Canadian? Certainly, you're a French-Canadian. But you must know that after the war, the Fuhrer intends to liberate your people from the British tyranny. Come on. How? French Canada will be free. You will be free. Mais c'est idiotique, ma foi. I am free. 
Or I was plenty free till you guys got in. I mean the freedom of your people and oppressed minority. The freedom to speak their own language, to have their own schools and churches, to govern their own affairs. There you will find it written in the Fuhrer's own words. Perhaps you've read it. Uh, I've no room in my pack for any book. I know my Bible, that's enough for me. This is the Bible. You must get a copy. It will explain everything to you as it has to me. You better look up how to get out of Canada, Dan. <laughs> Maybe she don't tell you that, huh? Ah, you're funny. Maybe uh, your Fuhrer ain't so smart as he think. Don't he know that we French Canadians have always our own school? And church, and a right to speak as we want, and run our own affair, by golly. No doubt you have certain privileges, but I don't feel... Let, let me ask you one question. Well? How about them uh, Poles? How about the French? Do you let them run their own affair? That is different. The whole new order in Europe. <laughs> okay, okay. You said enough. It really summarized the feeling of those making the film. And wasn't Lawrence Olivier? <laughs> he was he was Johnny the Trapper. And it was it was kind of interesting to watch it because he's had such a long and excellent career with Shakespearean uh, material on the stage and all. And here he's playing the uh, the Trapper guy. <laughs> he, you know, it's just it, it kind of this is a recurring theme throughout the movie of this worldview that these Nazis have about how they're going to impose their will on the world. But in their point of view, it's like they're coming to liberate these people. Yeah, they try that same speech on the uh, community out on the plains, and everybody's sitting there stunned. <laughs> yeah, the looks on the look on people's faces at that point was was something to behold because, yeah, they they uh, the Germans escape um, the Hudson Bay on a plane, uh, which is quite a harrowing journey. They're they're overloaded; they can't take off, and and uh, they're throwing things out of the plane as they're trying to take off on this pontoon plane, and then one of their uh, Nazis get shot, and then that's enough weight for them to be able to take off because his body falls out of the plane. But then the pi the pilot remembers that he forgot to check the gasoline in the in the reserve tank. The look on his face when he realized he hadn't checked the gasoline, and then Lieutenant Hirth was just mean enough to you know if, if there was another pilot on board, they would have thrown this guy out. Yeah. Right, so then they crash land in this lake, and uh, I think six of them survive, was that right, or four of them? Well, they started out with six. One was shot by one of the indigenous people, so that was five. Then the pilot died, so now they're down to four, and the leader is just such a dedicated Nazi, it's just unrelenting throughout the whole film. Yeah, right up to the end, yeah. Yeah, well, he gets his... He gets his just rewards in the end, thankfully. Yeah, there was uh, Vogel, who was played by Neil McGuinness, and then there was Raymond Lovell, I think, played Lieutenant uh, Kunek. And then... I, I'm not sure I know which ones were which, other than Eric Portman, and I like the character that was the baker. Yeah, that was Neil McGuinness. I really liked his character because he... So they 
come across this Hutterite. Is it Hutterite? Hooterite. Hooterite. Yeah, that was that really resonated with me because growing up in uh, Lewistown, Montana, we had two big Hooterite colonies close by. One was on the uh, Spring Creek Colony, and the other was the uh, King Colony. And my father, who had a plumbing and heating business, did a lot of plumbing work for both of those colonies, and we got to know them, especially my dad. He was he was friends with them. And almost all of them, I believe, were from Germany when they came over. Well, there's a there's a really enlightening conversation that they have. When they first get there, and they're talking about how people can do whatever job they want to do. We're sorry about the bread. Mm. I know a bit about baking. I don't mind my saying so, he was getting a new baker. We had a good one, but he went to Small Springs. Mm. Better pay? Pay? Oh, no, no one gets paid here. Does anyone get paid anything? No. Well, what do you work for, then? Just a keep? No, for us all. Well, all these people work for nothing. Yeah. What sort of work? Whatever suits them best. Well, what do you mean? They don't choose themselves, do they? Haven't you got a leader of the community? Yes, there he is, over there. Well, which is your leader? There. Third from the right. Well, doesn't he tell the people what sort of job they've got to do? Well, no, we tell him what we want to do. And how could he be your leader? How do you mean? Well, anyone works at whatever job they like, then. Yes, that's right. If somebody can make shoes, he makes shoes. If he wants to be a blacksmith, he works in the forge. If somebody feels he can preach, well, he preaches. <laughs> What's your specialty? I'm the baker. They just go talk to Peter, and Peter kind of tells them where to go, you know, to do that. So if they want to be a blacksmith, they can be a blacksmith. If they know how to make shoes, they can make shoes. If they can bake, they can be a baker. And the Nazis were just kind of dumbfounded by this idea because they they were saying, well, who's your doesn't your leader tell you what to do? <laughs> and I, I like that sort of like contrast between these different ways of living, you know. It was really stark and clear. I should back up for just a second. The six uh, uh, German Marines that were on the submarine were sent off by the submarine commander to get more provisions. And uh, before they could really get up the side of the uh, the mountain, the uh, Canadian uh, bombers came in and, and sunk the submarine. So now these six people are stranded in Canada. And Oh, right. That's an important, <laughs> well, that's an important and, point and, and, to uh, call I saw out. another film that was kind of on this theme of this one guy was trying to escape and get back to the U.S. because we were neutral in the United States at that time. And if they got there, then they would be turned over to the German authorities. So I assume these six Nazi Marines were trying to, to uh, find a way to get out of Canada because uh, the U.S. was still neutral. Not for long, but they were at this time. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think they had talked about maybe going south, directly south, but then they decided not to because the border would have been patrolled heavily by the Canadians, and so they decide that they're going to take that plane and fly west and go to Vancouver. And then there was a Japanese uh, boat that was going to be leaving Vancouver, like in a month. So they were trying to get to Vancouver, and then their plane crashed, and then they got 
connected with the Hutterites. And we get that nice uh, kind of dialogue where we learn more about their lifestyle versus how the Nazis are viewing the world. And then we get that amazing speech. Yeah, that was something. By Lieutenant uh, Hurt, where he's he's so convinced that because they're of German heritage that they will you know sign up with the Nazis and he couldn't be more wrong <laughs> what about you Anna Andreas huh? one of our guests is speaking eh? what oh good we we're discussing the Habermans I was about to say you have one clear choice where there is a question of blood where one is governed by the deepest of racial instincts then every other consideration is swept aside. Men like yourself, German or of German ancestry, rise up with all the might and power of the great German people behind you, conscious of the sacred duty that binds us all together and in the knowledge that he who does not forget his people will not by his people be forgotten. There is a new wind blowing from the east, a great storm coming across the sea, a hurricane which will sweep aside all the old outmoded ways of life and mark the beginning of a new order not only for Europe but for the whole world. Let those beware who would have the temerity to stand in its way. They will go down before its irresistible impulse and be crushed out of existence. But for those who accept the new order, for those who perhaps belong to it already, why need I use these parables of speech any longer? I mean all of you here tonight. Yes, you, brothers! I call you brothers and proudly acknowledge you as such. You who form the little stronghold of our people here in Canada, you will have your share of the happiness and prosperity that is waiting for us all. When the storm is over and the sun rises, that mighty sun, which will give us everything we need in life. What sun are you talking about, friend? I am talking of the greatest idea in history. The supremacy of the Nordic race, the German people. I am talking of the being whose name I am certain lives in every heart, whose name hangs on all our lips. Whether we can shout it to the world or only whisper it in one another's ears. Germans! Brothers! I ask you to join with me in paying homage to our glorious Führer, Heil Hitler! I don't ask where you come from or what brought you here. Although you've left us in no doubt as to your beliefs. Someone has given you, no doubt deliberately, a completely false impression of us. We are only one amongst many foreign settlements in Canada. There are thousands of them in this part of the world. And they have been founded some recently, some 80 years ago, by people who left their homes in Europe because of famine, because of starvation, because of racial and political persecution, and some like ourselves, because of their faith. 
Some came only to find new land, new boundaries, a new world. But all have found here in Canada the security, peace and tolerance and understanding which in Europe it is your furious pride to have stamped out. You call us Germans. You call us brothers. Yes, most of us are Germans. Our names are German, our tongue is German, our old handwritten books are in German scripts. But we are not your brothers. Our German is dead. However hard this may be for some of us older people, it's a blessing for our children. Our children grow up against new backgrounds, new horizons. And they are free. Free to grow up as children. Free to run and to laugh without being forced into uniforms. Without being forced to march up and down the streets singing battle songs. You talk about a new order in Europe. Then you order where there will not be one corner, not a hole big enough for a mouse, where a decent man can breathe freely. Peter has a great comeback. I mean, that's a that's a. I want to like get a print out of that and put it on my wall. It was a great speech. He was the. Uh, I think I, I'm not sure how they decide on who's sort of the leader of the of the community, the farming community. But uh, when Hearth is making that speech, it, it's interesting just to watch the faces of the people from the farming community, the Hooterites. Uh, they, 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 they can't believe what they're hearing from this guy who's just... Well, and quite a few of them had left Europe because of the Nazis. Oh, yeah. And and then there was the the Anna I think her name was Anna was the young woman that they first meet when they get there and she lost her whole family basically because of a submarine that torpedoed a, a ship that they were on. What was kind of uh, unexpected to me though was when uh, they were going to leave and you know Peter was saying that we're not going to keep you here we're not going to stop you from leaving. Uh, but, you know, you have to leave. And Vogel, who is the baker, decides he, he wants to stay. He wants to he, he either wants to stay or he wants to come back. Like, he wants to be captured and, and detained. And then when the war's over, he wants to yeah, come back. Yeah, he really found peace there. And uh, he was so welcomed by the, uh, by the community because the baker they had was not very good. And he was, he was a genius with baking bread. <laughs> oh my gosh, that bread looks so amazing! That 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 wood fired oven that he had—that there's like dozens of loaves of bread in there. That was plus like a he great stood shot. up for uh, Anna because uh, a couple of the people, the couple of the Germans were were uh, giving Anna particularly a hard time and threatening her, and Vogel stepped in to get her out of the room. So he was not endearing himself well, to the then, commander. And I absolutely want to call out the conversation that Vogel and Peter had because Peter says why you seem like a decent kind humble human being why are you hooked up with the Nazis 
How can a man like you, Fogel? I mean, you're a simple, good human being. How can you get mixed up with such a lot of gangsters? What can you do? When you're a boy, you like playing soldiers. When you're a young man, you can't get work unless you belong to them. When you're an old man, you're anxious not to lose what you've got. But there are thousands of men like you, Fogel. Men who don't like the way things are going. I suppose so. I suppose they don't know themselves. I didn't know. It's as if a blind man said he doesn't know the sun shines. I suppose so. Why don't you stay with us, Fogel? Do you mean it? Of course I mean it. Even if you know who I am, where I come I from... I don't care who you are or where you come from. I know you. Thank you, Peter. It will mean internment. What's it matter? I'll come back after the war. This is your home. This is just a classic example of how fascism can spread and how people get pulled into this. And, you know, I think at heart he wasn't a bad person. Um, and unfortunately he meets a, a bad end, though, because... Uh, uh, Lieutenant Hurth's not gonna. He he calls him a traitor and a deserter, and they they take him out and they shoot him, and that was kind of a shock. I thought again, it it the intent was to just do that kind of shocking thing, because the big audience was uh, it was intended to be shown in the United States a lot. Wasn't the photography beautiful when they were on that uh, in the farming community of the wheat fields? And the work that they were all were doing together, I, all I all I could do was think of my growing up years in Montana. That could easily have been filmed during harvest time in Montana. It's gorgeous, just gorgeous. Oh, it was gorgeous yeah. cinematography, yeah, gorgeous. And I think that's kind of a trademark of the of Pressburger and Powell um, when they team up together. They have their films are just beautiful. I think this film is one of the few black and white films that I would say would benefit from being in Technicolor or Deluxe Color, one of the one of the color films. But I think during the beginning of the war and maybe throughout the war, getting processing of Technicolor or similar products was really nearly impossible. Is the supplies of that the chemicals were in short supply, so they probably elected for the black and white. The cinematographer was Freddie Young, and he's known for Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, Ryan's Daughter, You Only Live Twice. Not a bad resume. So, yeah, he's not a bad wow. resume. Yeah. I forgot about Ryan's Daughter. That's another film that we'll have to add to our never-ending list of films to look at. Uh, so they, they, they have to exit the uh, Hutterite colony, and now they're down to... Th- Three, I believe. Yeah, and they and they uh, are gonna walk to Winnipeg. Well, that's to Winnipeg. Yeah, they, and so they it's something like it's two thousand kilometers. It was a long hike. I, <laughs> and they kind of joked about, oh, it's just two thousand kilometers. That's a lot of kilometers. But you know, it's they, there's some pretty cool c- scenery as they're walking along through the through the countryside. Yeah, it really sends the message to me as a viewer. What a beautiful country Canada was or is, and the way it was photographed at that time. Somewhere along the way, they uh, hijack a salesperson's car. Right, 
because he's got a bunch of suits and and uh, they take his car and they I think they drive the rest of the way into Winnipeg and and then yeah it's it's did you notice that as the film progresses they kind of went from like very uh, they went from different from one to another to another type of yes. lifestyle so we oh, start off with yeah. sort of the the native the native indigenous people and, and living off the land to the Hutterites who are more agrarian, also, you know, farming, living off the land to the big city and all the neon lights and the hustle and bustle and the crowds. All the close-ups of the various restaurants and they hadn't eaten very much. They, I yeah. think they had to, I think they had to barter or, or sell something in order to get enough money for something to eat the field glasses the field yeah. glasses yeah they got seven dollars for the field glasses and they were enough to buy some food and i think a train ticket because don't they take a train yeah then they, they get out to uh the uh, canadian rockies and that's a whole nother lifestyle but it's it's again it's sort of like okay there are a bunch of tourists at this national park and you can really only have that kind of level of tourism in the national park. If you've got an industrialized, you know, society where you have people that have free time to go do things like have a vacation and go to the national park. So, you know, there's this underlying sort of subtext of, uh, of the movie that, that I was picking up on around not just the, sort of the political statement but also sort of like the societal the way that they're living their life yes. kind of a statement oh yeah the freedom the the chance to move around yeah totally the, the success of society the the wealth that they have in the society and i'm wondering also or i think we're seeing a little bit of that especially in winnipeg through the nazis eyes and the two younger nazis who i think are just maybe privates um are a little bit dazzled, I think, by Winnipeg and all the flashing lights and all the food and all the, the hustle and bustle, you know? It sure seemed that way, the way they were presented on film. Yeah. But the uh, the uh, leader, the Lieutenant Hearth, keeps everybody in line because they know if they get out of line, he'll shoot them. He's truly a dedicated uh, Nazi. He's Yeah, he's not swayed by anything that he's seen or anybody that he's met to think any other way than he's been indoctrinated to think. Um, so then we meet uh, Philip Armstrong Scott, played by Leslie Howard. Oh, yeah, the uh, the uh, Nazis have to get out of... Uh, I, I don't know if they were in Banff or one of those places. Yeah, they were in Banff, and they almost get captured. One of them does get captured, and then two of them escape. So we've got the lieutenant and then one other of the soldiers, and they're hiking through some really rough terrain and you know having hiked through mountainous terrain like that the clothes they were wearing are just absolutely terrible for that kind of i kept thinking <laughs> what kind of shoes are they wearing for that trip yeah, ter yeah terrible. Like dress shoes you know like yeah and here here's uh here's our uh, leslie howard character philip armstrong scott camped out in the wilderness with a, another group of people he's an artist and a writer and and Leslie Howard was truly a, a patriot for the United Kingdom. He died in a in a plane crash in 1943. That uh, he was on a commercial flight from Lisbon back to England, and it was shot down by a couple of German planes. And there's always been speculation that he was on a uh, 
mission for some actual government spying. Beyond that acting, he was he was very, very committed to the English way of life. And not a bad actor either. Yeah, I, I really liked his character because he's uh, he welcomes these two strangers into his camp. Uh, he entertains them. He talks about art and literature and, and what he's he's been writing i thought some of the writing and it was very sort of colonial and you know uh not how things would be talked about today but again it was 1941 so uh, it was of its time there was an interesting he had an interesting reaction when he found out that they were nazis he called them gangsters give them reasoning powers and the gift of speech why don't we use them instead of hitting each other come on have a cigarette I don't think you're even a coward. I don't think you're a man at all. You must have had too much to drink. You both better get to bed. It's this gun loaded. What is this loaded? Then put your hands up. What do you mean? It's quite plain. Put them up. Well, well, well. This is a new experience. So I've been entertaining gangsters. Well, what do you want? Money or what? You don't believe it, Chuchu, do you? Such a thing couldn't happen to Mr. Philip Armstrong Scott. Anything unpleasant must be kept as far away as possible. As far as the war, 5,000 miles away. Suppose I were to tell you that the war is right here in this tent. I don't suppose you've heard of the U-boat that was sunk in Hudson Bay and the six Germans who escaped? So that's who you are. Nazis. Well, that explains everything. Your arrogance, your stupidity, your bad manners. Get over there by your books! Oh dear, do I have to be tied up? Excuse us, Mr. Scott. We still employ savage tribal methods. They get results. The best thing that's happened to us is meeting you. You put the heart back into us. Only two of us now. Two out of six brave men. There are millions like us in Germany. Any more of your sort here, you don't stand a chance of winning this war. We'll see to that. You know, the, the leader, uh, Lieutenant Hirth, you know, says some really unkind things about him, calling him a coward and uh, saying that he's hiding out there from the war. And, and he says, am I hiding out from the war? Huh, I hadn't really thought about that. And he's kind of having this, like, inner dialogue with himself as, as these two Nazis are standing <laughs> yeah. there with guns on him on him and then they proceed to destroy his artwork just out of meanness yeah they tie him up well well first they tie him up and he and he says you know what i'm not feeling fear i'm not shaking my mouth is a little dry that's weird yeah i was trying to understand his character a little bit more he's very intellectual he, he that's the kind of character he plays in many films there's one from 1936 or 37 with betty davis and he's hitchhiking in the in the desert of California, and he plays. Uh, he's a writer, and he plays the same kind of character. But he he doesn't get emotional about. It. He he gets upset when they burn his his manuscript and his book and his paintings. Uh, but he's not. He doesn't lose control. And then when he does get get untied by his uh, the other folks that are in camp there. And they start chasing these Nazis who are now running out into the woods trying to escape. And they get that one guy cornered, the other, the soldier. 
and he just walks calmly counting the number of shots that the soldier takes and then he gets hit in the hip by one of the bullets but he still proceeds to go into the cave and yeah. like he knock that guy that out off. and i think he wanted to just kind of prove to himself a little bit like i'm not a coward and you know what i'm not going to let these nazis get away with this he he did a lot of really wonderful films i'm thinking one the, the scarlet pimpernel where he's a spy he's, he's just he's just a very gentle he presents himself as a very gentle but strong-willed man pygmalion uh he was in gone with the wind can you quickly look at the film that he made in the 30s with betty davis in the desert humphrey bogart is in it i can't something desert petrified forest no the petrified forest that's it yeah yeah, he was excellent in that. One other thing, just kind of to interject here, David Lean, who had a, a long and a, uh, distinguished career, was a member of the crew as an editor in this film in his early years. So this film had a lot of people in it that went on to huge success in the film industry. Was Michael Powell a little bit outside of the um, mainstream sort of film production i always feel like his films stand out as being so different than like a lot of the films that were coming out at that time like the like this one and um the one that we're going to review Narcissus. next and black yeah, he was he yeah, was a, they, he, he was very very much his own person and and uh was fortunate that he was able to to uh, team up with pressburger the two of them created films that were that were unique and and different they certainly were not cookie cutter in any way. Yeah, they had a long career. I feel like these movies could be remade today, and and um, yeah, it'd be amazing to see like some of these movies with like you said, Technicolor or like special, like modern special. I, I, effects. I jump ahead a little bit. I'd love to see the Green Man redone today, which is I think that's the last of our <laughs> films that we're doing from Arthur's recommendations. I oh, still haven't watched it yet, so I'm, I'm, I got It could lend itself yeah. to being a hugely popular movie today with with the right people in the roles. But I, I, I'm biased toward anything Alistair Sim does. Is, is perfect. <laughs> I know. It's so good. So, so we're down to the last Nazi here, which is Lieutenant Hirth, and he's... Uh, uh, escaping through the through the woods he gets on a train uh, uh, and kind of sneaks onto a train and is hiding out and then this is where where we meet um, Raymond Massey's character who is a Canadian soldier who's eight days overdue from leave and he's he's <laughs> he knows he's in trouble by his CO uh, but he uh, I, what was he trying to do? Was he trying to escape to I, the I U.S.? I think he was trying to what, make up his mind what he wanted to do. He was kind of going back and forth. His character, Andy Brock, I think he's a little ambivalent, but when he meets up with Hearth, that crystallizes what he wants to do. I think Hearth and his arrival make it easier for Andy Brock to decide he's going to do the right thing. Yeah, because he's complaining about having having signed up for the army and then being a and then being assigned to just guard the border, and he's so bored, and and the food is not good. They eat beans three times a day, and uh, you know the look on Hearth's face 
is kind of like, well, you don't know who you're in this car with, you know, you're, you're here with Nazi (laughs) Germany (laughs) embodied by me. I think, uh, I think Massey does realize that that he does have a, he's going to play a bigger role now because he's got a chance to get even with this uh, Nazi. And it was a clever ending. I thought. Yeah. And it was a clever ending. And, and uh, he definitely, yeah, like you said, it crystallizes in his mind that what he needs to do, and he and he and he does it there at the end of the film, which is kind of a cool way to end it. I thought it was it was you know it was very much like a propaganda <laughs> film there at the very end. He's able to convince the railroad official that they're not on the manifest. He's not on the manifest, is he? What? I said he's not on the manifest. No. No. No, he's not. The American law... Oh, shut up. I know the law. It says imports are not admissible unless properly manifested. I find two items not listed. How do you check? Same way. Two unlisted items. But your law refers to freight, not to persons. This is a freight car, and you're freight. Tell the engineer to return this car. Okay. All those Canucks and tell him it's coming with two items missing from the manifest. Tell him to either list them or take them off. Check. Thanks, Colonel. Thanks a million. We've all got to do our duty, soldier. Now send your gun back to the Mounties. Okay. I don't need it. But I protest. You cannot do this. It's illegal. Honey boy, I've done it. Hello, Macaulay. It's Eddie speaking. We're sending back car number 8772. Gee, you guys are getting careless. There's two items not in the manifest. Now either list them or take them off. The two of them were not on the manifest, so they need to be sent back to Canada. And they've already crossed the the, uh, river, uh, and they're in the U.S., or about to get in the U.S., but he convinces them to send them back to Canada, which the company, the railroad guy does, and so it ends. (laughs) Hearth is captured, going to be captured. Lieutenant Hearth, like, turned over his gun, so now he's not armed, and he's locked in this, like, car with this Canadian soldier, and... They're being sent back to Canada, and and they're radioing. The U.S. is radioing ahead to the Canadian side, saying, "Hey, you've got two items on board that weren't on the manifest. Put them on the manifest, or take them off." <laughs> Just a, a kind of a side note: Raymond Massey's brother, Vincent Massey, at the time this film was made, was the Canadian High Commissioner to the United Kingdom and the future Governor General of Canada, and he's the one who read the opening prologue to the film. So a lot of people oh, got involved in this film because of its message and, and yeah. the need to, to make the points that it did. And uh, it is an epic film. I think Arthur's right. Not only is it a propaganda film, but it, it tells a big, big uh, view of Canada in 1940 and 41, uh, which was contrasted to the German submarine marines. Yeah, I, was, I, I hadn't really read about the movie or I'd never seen it before and and it starts off there in Hudson Bay and we're kind of getting to know Lawrence Olivier's character and and then he gets shot like three times I'm like wait a minute isn't he going to be in the movie anymore 
I guess we're moving <laughs> yeah. on, you know, and, 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 and then, you know, we're on to the next stop and, and it quickly became apparent that this was uh, a movie that was going to be a lot bigger than what I had anticipated. Oh, fun movie. Um, well done. And again, a thanks to Arthur for selecting it. It's, it's one that's not often shown on Turner Classic Movies or, or other places, but it's easily uh, accessed by Netflix DVD. Um, what was your rating on the film? Uh, yeah, I, I'm going to say a 10, but there's I have like this little bit of reservation because it, it did at times feel a little bit like, uh, yeah, like a propaganda film. And and that and that that subtracted a little bit from me from the enjoyment of it as being just a pure dramatic film uh, but i think it overcomes that just by the star power that it's got the cinematography the directing the writing um, and, and the powerful message that it does come across with even though uh, there's a few points where i was, I was like well this is this is a little heavy-handed yeah. you know it's a little bit it's a little bit much uh, but, you know, if you, th if you think about the time and what they were trying to do, and even if, if you extrapolate some of that to today and today's political climate, um, yeah, I think it pushes it to the 10 I would for give me. it probably a 10 on parts of it and an 8 on other parts for much the same reason that you just mentioned. I love the photography and, and the stories and all, but it did seem at times a bit heavy-handed. And I'm wondering, like, it came out in the U.S. in... Uh, I think it was March of 1942. So by then, Pearl Harbor had happened and we were well into the uh, war. And I wonder if the film suffered in terms of attendance and, and interest because of its timing or if it was early enough in the war that it still attracted a large audience. From what I was able to read, it did okay financially, but I I'm th always think of my mom and dad because they would have been going to films at this time period and if this film had hit the screen like in late 1940 or early 1941, it seems to me it would have been even a bigger success, just as I think about how they viewed film. Because now in 1942, we were on to like films that were like Guadalcanal Diary and some others that were really into the war effort. Yeah, it was it was a winner for best writing original story in 1943 for the Academy Awards, and it was nominated best picture. Yes, I forgot to mention. Yeah, so you know it was definitely recognized in its time. Um, it, it's interesting. I'm, I'm kind of thinking about some movies that have come out recently, and in a way some of the some of the movies that come out today are propaganda films as well you know like if you think about some of the movies to do with Iraq or the Middle East and they portray the US and sort of our involvement there in a certain way um, it it does kind of fall in you know when you're watching it if you if you take a step back and think you know what is it that I'm actually watching here versus just getting sucked up into the story it it does it does kind of read as a propaganda film as like some, some recent films. I'm not going to name them, but uh, it's, yeah, it's interesting the role that film has in that aspect of our life. And I guess one good thing about this is that it was called out as, as a propaganda film. So they were transparent about it. Whereas a lot of films I think are that way and they don't 
really let you know that that's what they're doing, you know? Or maybe it's just, maybe they don't even realize it as they're making it. Oh, in, I think that's been true, you know, for the last 60 years on different films that have been made without going into some of them, but... Um, uh, it, it, well... Let's just let's just let's just pick on an entire genre because why not just generalize out to an entire genre, right? <laughs> right. Like, but like the western and the way that the westerns uh, portray oh, indigenous yes. people—that's the propaganda as well, and it's and it's presenting the history of our country in a certain way that makes you think that you know, there's a good guy and a bad guy, you know, and and like the the bad guys are the indigenous people, and we've got to go in and wipe them out when you know we're doing the western expansion when a lot of these films were set that's kind of the thing that i'm talking about with the both the overt or maybe the the more so, subvert kind of propaganda in films well it was just speaking on that subject for just a second when i was searching around for a, a film or two that we could look at that would be about the first peoples in the us from that perspective that's before you know, the recent times, that's really almost impossible to find before 1990 or in that general time frame. Well, we, we like the movie, and we want to thank Arthur for for recommending it, and uh, the others that we're going to look at are going to be excellent as well. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was really fun to watch. Yeah, it was a good movie. Uh, recommend watching it. Uh, and that was our review of the 49th Parallel. And coming up next, it is uh, Stairway to Heaven, otherwise known as... A Matter of Life and Death. A Matter of Life and Death. Yeah, I've, I'm so familiar with the other title. And uh, that's another choice by Arthur, and he'll have a few uh, minutes of uh, some thoughts on that film as well. And then it'll be The Green Man. <laughs> the, inept, the, yeah, the inept Alistair Sims as the uh, hitman. <clears throat> and those are all going to be on our public feed at classicmoviereviews.net. And then over on our Patreon feed, we've got Close Encounters coming up next and then uh, on the waterfront. So we're kind of alternating. And uh, yeah, check us out on Patreon if you want to join us on the show. Uh, we have two spots left at Tier 4, and you can actually uh, join us in a full episode and then you know pick a theme for the other movies of that series and and have a few words to say on those as well so that's kind of fun and a great way to uh, get involved and so coming to you from north bend this is matt johnson and here in los angeles bob johnson wishing you all happy movie watching put him out nancy no not that way this way because i'm not asking for those pants I'm just taking them.